Hello, you are listening to the Oz Media Report. My name is Dan Barrett. There's an icon of Australian television that, nearly 30 years after it went off the air, still engenders a huge amount of positivity and goodwill. There's very few shows like it. It's called Country Practice. Even a theme song stirs up a sense of Australiana and warmth for this country that I know I certainly don't even feel from the national anthem. I'm not calling for our national anthems to be replaced by the Country Practice theme song, or maybe I am. This week on the Oz Media Report, we have a chat with Melanie's Haight. She's one of the masterminds behind A Country Podcast. It's a podcast that looks back at the cultural impacts of the Australian TV classic. I also have a chat with reporter Daniel Johnson. He's the arts reporter for In Queensland. It's a relatively new news service, maybe six months old now, that's attracted some pretty big names as it delivers daily news and opinion to the underserved Queensland news market. We have a chat about In Queensland in the lead-up to that state's election at the end of this month. But first, Melanie's Hayes and a country podcast. I love podcasts. I love TV. Throughout my career, I've managed to merge these two passions together a number of times. But specific to this conversation, I've produced a couple of podcasts in the past based around TV shows. I did one based around the UK kids show classic Press Gang. It was called The Gaz. While working over at SBS, I hosted Batman Land. It was based on a 1966 Batman TV show. Orville Land, based on the US show The Orville. The Good Fight Club, based on the show The Good Fight, which, due to legal involvement, the show became known as The Good Fight, an SBS fan podcast. And boy, was I a fan of that name. Uh, And I also co-created and produced Eyes on Gilead, which is a very popular podcast based on The Handmaid's Tale. In producing these podcasts, I developed some theories, the big two being these. If you're going to do a show about, a a podcast about TV shows, the shows needs to be well known outside of Australia as the local podcasting market's too niche and the Australian audience is too small to support it otherwise. And also the conversation needs to be about more than just recaps. You can't always expect an audience to have watched the episode you're talking about, although that rule is a little bit bendy when it comes to a show that's airing the same week that it's going to air. Now, outside of that, there's a couple of Australian shows that probably could support it. My immediate thoughts were shows like Blue Healers, Neighbours, Home and Away, McLeod's Daughters, but there was one I hadn't thought about, and it completely skirts every single rule that I thought we had about these podcasts entirely, and I think this one's a bit of genius. A Country Praxis. As soon as a friend of mine mentioned she's working on A Country Podcast, a podcast series about a country praxis, I was gobsmacked. Immediately I knew she was onto a winner. It perfectly strikes that sweet spot of nostalgia, genuine Australian culture, and it's got a warmth that I think is missing from the world right now. Melanie's Heat, she's the co-host of A Country Podcast, and she joins me on the line from Wandon Valley. Mel, thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> Hello, Dan. So nice to be here. And you really do have form with the TV podcast, don't you? Yeah, literally, I just started scribbling out an intro and thought, wait a second, I've done this a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. We should have consulted with you before we started. Look, and I am open to consultancies going forward, so, you know, feel free to get in contact with anyone. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but a country practice, like, it actually... So, I, I'd come up with these theories about podcasts, which is mm. that I had to be overseas shows, and for what I was saying, that the Australian audience is a bit small, and I think it'd be hard to get cut through. But there's something about a country practice specifically that I think people just hear that, and immediately I think they feel warm inside, and they want to listen to a country podcast. Like, it just kind of, there's something magic about this idea. Well, there's a few things I think at play with a country practice and a country podcast. And I think that like the main thing obviously is this show was extremely loved for the, I think it was 13 years that it was on the air. Uh, We spoke with the creator of the show, Dan, James Davin, a couple of weeks ago. And he was saying, and I'm paraphrasing, but roughly Mm. a third of the audience was over 60. The other third of the audience was between 20 and 60. And the other part of the audience, uh, the other third of the audience was up to the age 20. So so basically every, that was some analytics that Channel 7 apparently did. I, I he, he had the specific numbers, I can't remember them. But it pretty much speaks to the way that this show was very much of its time and pretty universal in its themes and the like. And most Australian, well, a lot of Australians sat down to watch it every Monday and Tuesday night. And I think as well, like I'm 40 and I'm at that age now, I guess, where you start reflecting on um, the the good things about your life. And that was a really uh, special time I remember in my childhood. You know, I had two parents that had very uh, busy small businesses, so they weren't home a lot. Um, And I was one of four kids. It was a really kind of... um, 
what do you call it when something's a bit like not a messy, but it was a it was a like there was a lot going on in my childhood, and I remember Monday and Tuesday nights, seven thirty till eight thirty, as being a very calm time. You know, a very um, sort of nice family time, mm. and I think a lot of people have that similar recollection. So there's there's a lot of things at play that make this an appealing listen, if you will. Okay, let's maybe start right at the beginning. And I'm kind of curious about the sort of chicken and egg factor of this. Did you start going into this project wanting to do a podcast or did you specifically approach it from a country practice and working well, for the podcast that way? My my podcast partner, Kim Lester, and I have been oh, like friends for years and years and years and have wanted to work on something. And Kim is very uh, – an extremely good producer. You know, she's um, – She's like top level at the ABC. She's one of those people that when you are, you know, I've been a presenter at the ABC or previously was a presenter at the ABC for a really long time. And Kim is kind of like the dream presenter, you know, a producer, the person you really want on your team. She's a person with great ideas who's very reliable, uh, very creative, but at the same time, you know, has the right contacts, knows who to call, knows how to get people on the show, etc. So she had wanted to make a podcast with me as the presenter and we sort of over the years would try and come up with ideas but I just couldn't I couldn't come up with one she couldn't come up with one and then just about um, as COVID was sort of starting to happen she came up with the idea of a country practice simply because I'm a famous country practice nerd amongst all my friends and have been for a really 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 long time for so many reasons I don't want to bore you now but uh, this show has been with me my entire life in really weird ways and um, and so Kim suggested it and I thought at first oh this is fantastic and then I I said just give me a month or so to think about it because I felt like it was one of those fantastic ideas that I would be sick of in about half a second but once we decided what the format would do, like I didn't want to do a recap show because I agree with you about recap shows that recap shows, to me, I'm, I'm not interested in them even in shows that I love. Like, I mean, I really, um, I mean, not that I, I mean, obviously I love a country practice, but I, I'm not interested in, like I, I went through a big phase of The Bachelor years ago. I would never <laughs> yeah. have listened to a to a, uh, to a recap podcast. Um, so once we came up with that format, which was kind of inspired by another podcast that we really love called The Big Pick, po- uh, Best Pick Pod. I don't know if you know that one. No, I don't know it. Um, it's about, it's these three people that every week they look at one of the uh, famous, the, the big the um, best pitches, you know, like the best uh, Academy Academy Award pitches. One of them looks at the context of the time that it was happening. One of them looks at the actual award ceremony and one of them looks at the making of the film. So once we decided on a, on a, um, a format, which was, I looked at uh, the people and the creatives and what they've gone on to do um, mm. in our industry, because this is a real, um, uh, you know, sort of, it's almost like a university of Australian television, uh, a country podcast, a country practice, sorry. <laughs> and Kim would look at the um, societal context because we realised that a country practice is such a social issues show. So once we had that, I was on board and I could do it forever now. So that's, that's a really long-winded way of saying how it came about, Dan. Yeah, so obviously it is a recap podcast. Uh, sorry, it's not a recap podcast, it's not but a you recap, are approaching yeah. it from looking at highlights of the series as it went on. Yeah. And I guess maybe the question for you is a way to approach the podcast would be the way that you're doing it now, or you could approach it from a sort of doc- podcast documentary style where you say, hey, look, these are our six episodes. This is what we're going to explore. And break yeah. it the way down that you are talking about doing it, which is I'm going to look at the societal aspects and carry yeah. that through and have it as a narrative uh, through form. Why did you necessarily choose the approach that you did and how long a life do you think this podcast has? Because it's more open-ended than the idea of a six-episode yeah. run. Look, we actually think it's probably got uh, – we've got two se- two seasons of eight already completely planned out and booked mm. um, and mostly recorded because one of the things that's been amazing is this has been the absolute right time for the cast and crew and creatives of a country practice to be sitting back and reflecting and happy to talk about it. So everybody wants to talk to us. Everyone's been in touch. You know, it's that kind of like we haven't, I keep every day, not every day, maybe twice a week, I'll get an email from somebody on Twitter or um, on Facebook saying, oh, my, um, my mother was a costume designer. Would you like to talk to her? You know, like we're constantly having people getting in touch with us. So we've got, we think we've got three series in us. We've always wanted to build up to talking about Molly's death. Um, so we don't, 
we, our dream, Dan, and I think this is inspired a bit by you guys at Eyes at Gilead. Eyes on Gilead or at Gilead? On Eyes Gilead. on Gilead. On Gilead. Um, it's inspired by uh, you You on Eyes on Gilead is that we really want a live event screening <laughs> Molly's death, seeing the two episodes of Molly's death and then having a discussion with the cast and creatives about it. And that's how we'd like to go out, as you know. Um Realistically, like, though. Let's just sort of say for younger people listening who may not necessarily have been sort of cognizant of, you know, pop culture and stuff at the time, the death of Molly was a major moment in Australian television yeah. to, to like the same level as like a Scott and Charlene wedding over on Neighbours. And ah. honestly, I can't yeah. even think of any other events the, two, the size of those two events. Like these are the two as far as I'm concerned. I would argue that it's probably well. Most people would argue that it's the major moment in a, of Australian television. Like in every countdown of the best moments of Australian television, like I couldn't believe that um, Julia Gillard's misogyny speech beat it, Molly's death over uh, it, at the Guardians. You know how the Guardian yeah. had like that, a that was a ridiculous. Countdown? That's not a TV moment. That's a politics moment that was captured on television. Exactly. And and Molly's death is kind of was this huge cultural moment that interestingly it was something very different for a country practice a show because a country practice a show was riding high at the time mm. and they thought it would be the end of them losing this much beloved character but actually it was kind of the making of the show. So um so yeah that that I think that Molly's death is a real example of how we're able because can you know like sons and daughters, um, home and away, uh, all those other kind of Australian dramas, Blue Heelers even, mm. or maybe Maggie's death would be almost um, the same as Molly's. But by then we kind of weren't watching TV the same way. Yeah, it's not at that scale. And yeah, you're right. We'd sort of moved on as TV viewers. It wasn't quite yeah. a all of the country sitting down and watching this show even at that yeah. point. So I think Maggie's death was like late nineties. Right, right, and and yeah, I don't, I don't remember it. I think, but but it, I, I think that uh, to answer your question though, we think we're going to have three series, but every time we sit down to do an interview, or we watch a show, or we we're just having such a good time. There's a thousand and thirty eight episodes. I feel like we could do it forever because it's just so it just brings such joy to both Kim and my life doing it, um, and beautiful things have happened out of it as well already. So it's a really great thing to be involved with. Yeah, now it seems like immediately out of the gate, this podcast got a lot of attention, which is exactly what I expected when you first mentioned the idea to me a couple of months ago. Now, did you expect there to be such enthusiasm? So mainstream media has picked up on this in a really big way. And look, you'd know you've been a radio producer as well as presenter. Like when opportunities like this come up, you're like, oh, something about a country practice. We can talk about the TV show. We can play the theme song. Like it immediately makes for a great bit of radio or television. Yeah, it does. So I can understand why the mainstream media has jumped on this immediately. But did you expect it to be at the level that it has been? I don't think it's been a breakfast or morning show you haven't been on talking about this so far. (laughs) You know, interestingly, haven't been on Channel 7. Isn't that interesting? Like haven't done any Channel 7 publicity when, you know, I'm sure we're driving quite a few people to 7 plus for the first time. Um, Where you can't get every episode of a country practice. You can get up to season 10 now, I think, and then 11, 12 and 13 you still have to buy on DVD, which are very expensive. Okay. Um, But, yeah, you can get most of it uh, and certainly the golden years of it on 7 Plus at the moment. And Um, just just for context there, how many episodes on a season? Because it's not like a eight-episode or 20-episode season that you find these days. This is a (laughs) lot of episodes. So the the first season has just a normal amount. I can't remember how many, but, you know – 12 or 20 or something yeah every episode every season from then on has about 90 because this went <laughs> this played most of the year two nights a week so it's there's country practice for i would say for days but actually probably for weeks and years there mm. <laughs> that is crazy yeah so uh, did did i expect it um yeah you know i expected that like to be honest with you dan i don't ever do anything at all in my career and this goes from broadcasting to playwriting to making this podcast I don't do anything for a, an audience of 10 or for 20 everything I do I set out for it to be as big a deal as I can possibly make it um, so I kind of had a sense that there would be a lot of interest in this because over the years I've put things on Twitter about a country practice and they've always gone bananas in a Mm. certain, like niche bananas. You know what I mean? Like I'm not talking thousands of retweets or anything, but niche bananas. Like I knew that there was something um, that people would 
it would appeal to people. I didn't think like, you know, I thought that I would maybe get a little spot on um, James Valentine's show on ABC Sydney called Plug, where he does a quiz and then you plug something. That's that's kind of the extent I thought. And then I thought Facebook would take care of everything else. Mm. I did not I didn't expect, you know, we've had coverage everywhere, as you <laughs> as you just pointed out. It's been amazing. But still, like as with all podcasts, we rely on people sharing it with each other like we didn't when we were on channel nine for example talking about it we didn't see any huge discernible um shift in our numbers where we did see a discernible shift in our numbers is somebody um in fact our colleague and friend our frolic ginger gorman shared the podcast on the chat 10 looks three facebook page yep. and that's the biggest bump we've had in the whole in the whole time we've been um you know downloading the show so it hasn't translated into like it, it's still that same old podcast thing that word of mouth is what helps something travel. A uh, little bit of quiet insight on the Eyes on Gilead podcast. Uh, we weren't getting a huge amount of traction from SBS's social team, but as soon as we made it onto the Chat Ten Looks Three uh, Facebook group, that was the magic spot go. for us. Yeah, it's very yeah. powerful, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's, the and exact, it's, and it's the exact audience that you're wanting to talk yeah. to. Yeah. But also Absolutely. from my own experience as someone who's regularly on the radio, I mean, I've been on your radio show a whole bunch of times over you know, yeah. the couple of years you were in yeah. uh, Tasmania. Uh, whenever I'd appear on that, I would never get any bump whatsoever in anything that I do. My daily newsletter would never get any extra subscribers. Uh, I was on the ABC Gold Coast about an hour and a half ago. I will get nothing from that. I was doing Radio yeah. National Breakfast for a couple of years. High profile slot. I would get nothing yeah. at all. But if you appear on a podcast, if you appear on a digital platform, that's where you get the pickup. It's amazing, isn't it? It's actually really, it's really astonishing. You, it's sort of, yeah, I find that that part of it really, really interesting. It's all about word of mouth, really, isn't it? You know, that yeah. word of, that digital, or like you're saying, that digital sort of, digital and word of mouth in podcasts, yeah. But digital and podcasts have a little bit of this, but podcasts are like a weird mix of lean in and lean back consumption. But because you've got like usually a phone nearby, like it means that you've got like an immediate sort of point of action. But because digital is all lean in, it means that if you come across something that you're interested in, it's not that much of a reach for you to be able to connect to that person and, you know, yeah. support whatever it is yeah. that they're doing or find out more. If you're on TV, you're on the couch, you might have a phone in your hand, probably not. Audience skews a bit older these days yeah. for TV. Yeah. Like, you know, it just isn't the same. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, now, anyway, back to the podcast specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, you... You mentioned earlier about talking about the social politics of the show. And I was wondering, how do the politics of the show actually hold up? Because when I said I was talking about the 60s Batman TV show for a podcast, the politics in that are incredibly clunky. It's from the mid-60s. It was a kid's family adventure show. It's like a broad comedy. And we had to address a lot of issues that came up in that podcast for the audience, yeah. and particularly sensitive because we were on SBS doing it. But... Uh, what, what about you? Like, are you finding that the politics hold up or are they a little bit clunky? Oh. Like, where's it sitting? No, do you know Do you know what's super interesting about it is that it, I've been thinking a lot about this because I watch it a lot and find that the politics are just so kind. They're so, you know, almost without exception. Of course, every now and again, you'll see something where you think, oof, that's a bit iffy. But yeah. very, very rarely, like we we just did, it was funny, Dan, Kim really wanted to just do an episode this week. So we decided we'd do an actual recap episode. We did <laughs> yeah, sure. a recap where they, they were dealing with sexual harassment and euthanasia. And really interesting to look at how sexual harassment was viewed and dealt with in the 1980s. Mm. Um, and it was basically like a utopian dealing of it. Like every time I sit down, I quite often tend to watch it, Dan, on like a Friday night where I'll be thinking, oh, the weekend's coming. I don't know what I'm going to, you know, like everything's so much quieter with COVID. There's no going out or anything. And I just, I sit down, I think I'll watch a couple of episodes of Country Practice and I get wrapped up in how it's it's very left-wing, like it's ext and, and kind and holds up really really beautifully <clears throat> and when you talk to excuse me the actors and writers uh they're all still those people they're all still engaged like the conversation we had with Shane Porteous who's now in his late 70s he played Dr Terence and we were talking with him about the multiculturalism of the show and the fact that there's not much of it in there there is you know in later seasons but 
not much of it. And he was talking about how um, they used to get fight back from the from the networks and the advertiser, uh, the advertisers about those kinds of storylines. But he was still engaging in the language of today, if you know what I mean. Like the that he was saying he he was using language like people of color. He was, do you know what I mean? He kind yeah. of was very engaged. Pardon. He was like modern progressive. Absolutely. And I think that all these people that wrote it initially, like the social aspect of it was very, very important to them. We've discovered like the the fact that they were in a way educating Australia on medical issues and social issues was something that was very, very important to them. Like I would just direct anybody to go back and watch the episode. Um, I'd have to find out. I can't remember specifically where it is, but you'll if you just Google, you'll find it where Bob Hawke visits Wandon Valley. Um, yeah. And he visits Wandon Valley because a group of teenagers are very upset about nuclear destruction, like about nuclear destruction ruining their um, society. And so they all, they do rallies and they write to the Prime Minister and they organise like a, a concert to raise awareness and then he rocks up and uh, gives this speech about why nuclear war is terrible, you know. <laughs> And I was sitting there crying watching it. It was so beautiful. Like the politics of it had, had everything about it was so hopeful. It gives me goosebumps just talking about it now, <laughs> Dan. Uh, the politics of it were just so on point. To the, and, and it got me thinking, was the show able to be so politically, you know, correct as we'd say today? Like it is, it's very, like I said, it's like this lefty, lefty utopia fever dream. Um was it able to do that because it was broadcasting the entire way through the Bob Hawke, Paul Keating years? And I wonder whether it was acceptable then for the whole country to sit down and watch those politics. On the flip side of that, there's always somebody There's always somebody in the episode who will have that differing point of view who is taught something, you know, like there'll be one of the oldies who'll say, but hang on, we don't like people who don't look like us around here. They should go back to where they came from. Like not that sort of, but something like that. And they'll always have have a learning through the story. So it's um, politically it holds up for the most part very, very well. Yeah, my theory is that it's maybe not necessarily so much that it was part of the Hawke years, although it does mean that society is probably a bit more open to it. But I think there's something about a show that's set in a very sort of quintessential small town in Australia that kind of allows you to sort of introduce these more progressive ideas in a way that feels safer and it's a bit more covert but, feeling. You know, that's interesting because it's the flip side of what actual life is like in a small country town um, yeah. and what the politics of a small country town are. So I don't know. I'm, I'm going to stick to my guns for the moment about it being Hawk Keating era. Also the fact that most of the writers were city based, you know, yeah. like they did their recce's and stuff like that. But I think most of them were like living in St Kilda or Darlinghurst or somewhere like that and bringing those kind of urban progressive ideas <laughs> to Wandon Valley. Now you mentioned earlier Shane Porteous and I was wondering mm. how the cast of the show has generally responded to it. So I'd imagine the show has always bubbled along in the background of their lives, but then suddenly mm. the show has come, your podcast has come along, activated it almost immediately. So overnight, suddenly I'm sure there's a whole lot more conversations about a country practice suddenly mm. permeating through their lives. Yeah, it's been really, really nice. So someone like Shane Porteous was saying that uh, it's a really good time for him to talk about it now. You know, initially when the show finished, because he played that role for 12, 13 years, he was very, very typecast and found it very difficult to get any other sorts of roles. So not that he um, he bandied against it in any way, but it I think that there was maybe not and not even resentment because he talks a lot about how it got his three kids through school and university and that was what he wanted, etc. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think it was difficult for quite a few of the people to build a career outside of those really much beloved characters. Now, though, we're sort of 20, 30 years or we're 30 years from it ending or, or almost 30 years from it ending. I think they can all step back and look at what an experience it was. And we've had nothing but like we've not that we've tried to find it, but we've really been listening for it. Um, any unrest, but it seems that it was just a really great experience for pretty much everybody we've spoken to. And they've been very, very happy to talk about it. And I got this beautiful email from one of the writers last week um, who was saying that they had lost one of their writers uh, the, the week previous mm. and that they 
we'd basically given them all something to laugh and smile about over the last few weeks with the podcast, which is really very lovely. Yeah, that is wonderful. A country podcast, you can find on all the standard podcast platforms. That's right. You sure can, Dan. <laughs> and we're fortnightly. We're fortnightly on a Friday morning. Now, is there a website that people can also go to to engage at all, a Facebook group, anything like that? It's a, there's a Facebook uh, group which is called A Country Podcast and it's pretty easy to find us and we'd love you to like us there. We've got all sorts of fun things going on there. Like we've got um, – basically it's just my space to be able to share pictures of Dr. Terence slash Shane Porteous being gorgeous <laughs> over the years. So that's what you'll find. If you think that he he was gorgeous, that's the place for you to go because you'll love the pictures too. But we've got lots, yeah, lots of fashion, pictures, videos, things like that we share when we're not sharing the podcast. Okay, so that's a country podcast, possibly the most important Australian cultural um, <laughs> moments that we've seen in some years. <laughs> I'm glad that you can see it for its import, Dan. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Melanie. Head up to Brisbane and you'll find the news market is very different than you find in Sydney or Melbourne. It has, for a very long time, been a one newspaper town. In recent years, that's changed, with the then Fairfax entering the market with Brisbane Times. That's a limited resource news website that punched well above its weight for some time, but like the News Limited-owned Courier Mail newspaper, both have reduced headcounts in recent times. In terms of news services on TV, there's nightly news from 7, 9 and the ABC, Ten's also got local stories, but with news filmed out of Sydney. And with talk radio, there's ABC Brisbane. And up until a couple of months, it was an island with competitor 4BC scaling back to have just one local drive show. Since the nine purchases of Fairfax, the company's actually been bringing back local voices, but there still isn't a full daytime lineup originating in Brisbane yet. A welcome addition to a very hungry local news market is the introduction of In Queensland, it's primarily delivered as a daily email newsletter, but it's got a website supporting it. It launched just this year, but it's been gaining traction with readers. It's attracted a stable of well-known journos in Queensland with daily news stories covering politics, business, arts, and other local issues. I spoke with reporter Dan Johnson, who covers the arts beat about the launch of In Queensland in a year that not only has a state election, but he's also trying to cover arts during a time of pandemic. And I'm joined on the line by Mr. Daniel Johnson, who's arts editor. Is that your job title at the moment, Dan? Oh, look, I'm I'm an arts arts writer, I suppose. Arts I, writer. I guess for um in the absence of there being uh, another more senior person writing about arts, there sure. And um and also do uh, some sub editorial stuff there. So um you know I I am an experienced sub editor, so I seem to have a skill set that paints me into doing these two jobs uh, <laughs> in the past place that worked at least anyway but um yeah okay so in queensland launched i'm gonna say maybe about six to eight months ago is that about right yeah i think it was the first week of february when we went live um yeah. maybe maybe february 10 i think now if you're not in queensland which would probably be the bulk of the people listening to this podcast they're probably not familiar with in queensland uh, do you want to tell us a bit about the publication what's the scale of uh, how many journalists are working for it like what's the general framework uh, yeah, look, it's a, it's a pretty small and specialist and dedicated team of journos that we've got. We launched, yeah, like I said, in February and it's, a, it's, it does have, um, you know, it's basically based on, uh, in daily in South Australia, if anyone is familiar with that, but it's its own entity and it's essentially an independent public, public interest journalism site that. I suppose the very reason for its existence is that the fact that it's targeting these areas like business and arts and culture, which I cover obviously, and doing politics in a very even-handed way that perhaps uh, some critics have said isn't being done as well by some of the traditional media outlets anymore. I guess that's those things not being covered as well by some of those traditional players is why this uh you know had a market to exist in and um and yeah i mean we've got sean parnell who is someone that I, I i did know a little bit from his time at the australian because i, I used to work in a in somewhere in, in proximity to where he worked anyway and um, we were both members of the meaa and i was quite active there so I, I knew him a little bit but um i've gotten to know him quite well since i started in queensland and he's the way he finds an angle for a lot of the political stuff that hasn't been done and, and his just really easy to digest analysis is great. And John McCarthy, who's an old friend and colleague of mine, 
just by the same token goes and and finds these business stories you know that there might be a little bit of a lead here or a thread that he pulls and he's he's just doing this local business stuff that's not getting coverage elsewhere and we've got Brad Cooper who's doing our sort of he's our regional specialist and he's previously been at the Queensland Country Life and we've got Katrina Bykoff down the coast who sort of is doing a lot of stuff down there and on top of that, we've got a lot of sort of specialist columnists like Dennis Atkins, who I'm sure most people who are going to be listening to a media podcast have heard of. <laughs> At least from appearances on Insiders and yeah, the more national profile from that. A, a lot of people uh, would know him from there. And he's obviously, a, you know, he's had a long and, and storied career as a journo as well. And we've got Michael Blucher as a regular columnist and Bob McDonald, uh, Robert McDonald, who uh, used to be an associate editor at the Courier Mail, actually. And Madonna King has just started doing some election uh, columns for us. Nicole Bond does the odd thing, who I know that you probably <laughs> remember from the Queensland Country Hour, because that's where I first came across her when you were my boss at Media Monitors many years ago. We don't need to talk about that. <laughs> no, we can't. No, of course not. E- edit that out in post. <laughs> and yeah, we've also got Rebecca Levingston and... Over the time, we've, we've had some other uh, people as well, including. Look, I could probably stop there and say it's it's a small, it's a pretty small and uh, and nimble team, but um, I, I think I'm pretty proud to be working there because of just what we managed to to put together every day, really, and um, and it's getting a lot of engagement and uh, you know positive feedback from a, a lot of the people that that are reading it. Yeah, the editorial strategy seems to be from what I can sort of see from the outset is they've gone in, they've looked at the fact that the Courier Mail has been scaling back in recent years. Brisbane Times, even though it was a fairly small and nimble operation, is even smaller and more nimble than it has been at any other point through its duration of existing. And then you've got the fact that you've got other broadcasters which have scaled back and you've got all these talented journos that are just there in Queensland just waiting to have the opportunity to write about Queensland stories again. Some of them have gone freelance, some of them moved into state over the years and have come back to Queensland. But it seems like there's this great opportunity to grab a whole bunch of writers who are, I'm assuming are probably doing this more freelance than being on staff necessarily, but contributing to this publication, actually bringing news back to Queensland. Yeah, well, I guess a lot of the, the people I mentioned before are on the payroll, like I must, myself included, but a lot of the more specialist columnists, the the people that are doing weekly columns and whatnot, yeah, they, they are on a freelance basis, but... I, I wouldn't want to speak on my editor and publishers, but, yeah, <laughs> but um, look, I, th- I think he's assembled a pretty uh, good, strong team that had a, had respective networks and contact books that really reflected their experience. And something I would say on just speaking for myself here is that obviously I've been writing about music for many years, uh, starting out in the early 2000s at Time Off, and I've, I've worked at AAP and, and at News Corp. And I just have really enjoyed the opportunity to not only... Um, you know, have to really expand my contact book to cover visual arts, performing arts, and and anything that sort of comes under a, an arts and culture and music banner, which is a lot. But I'm um, just being given the opportunity to write long form stuff every day about things that aren't being covered well. And and in a year like this, that's uh, not be without its challenges. But there's been a lot to write about, and I'm just grateful to have the space and and the time and and the platform to do that, I guess. Yeah, look, earlier on, you said something along the lines of there'd been some criticism that arts coverage hadn't necessarily been as dedicated as it should be throughout Queensland. And in fairness to the other writers who are writing about arts within Queensland, like it hasn't been a beat that's been particularly well-resourced. And look, that's not just a Queensland thing. That's a arts coverage thing across the country, sort of as definitely in the last year and a half as our budget started shrinking everywhere. But particularly in Queensland, like there just hasn't really been like a lot of people have been dedicated to be able to do this. So it's kind of good to see that you're there as part of this team, that arts is maybe considered as not necessarily as equal. And it's a bit hard to judge this at the moment because Queensland, as we record this, it's the 12th of October, 2020. There's a state election, what, in about three and a half weeks time in Queensland? Like everything in Queensland is very election focused right now, but like you're still there. Like I think, uh, I don't have the email in front of me, but when the email came out this morning with all the in Queensland stories, I think arts coverage was maybe like the third top story in there. And you do have a fairly big art story in the uh, publication today, but just think about the fact that arts is considered to be as valuable as the other big important news stories at the moment. Obviously election coverage is going to be dominating the, the news cycle up here at the moment. But um, they do have, you know, four pillars is what I was told when we started. And it's and it has rung true. 
news, politics, business and culture. And I think particularly in terms of business and culture, those those were very important to include there for um, when, when Peter, my editor, was telling me about it because they were perceived as things that perhaps weren't being covered the way that they used to be or with the same depth by other publications. And obviously the news and politics, rightly or wrongly, some other outlets are accused of perhaps not being as balanced as they used to be. And, um, and so I think all of those uh, those basically pillars that they do cover are, are there for a reason. And, and that's really what engaged me to, you know, it had my ear straight away that the the pitch of we're going to be including this as something that, that we cover regularly and, and, and cover well. And I, I hope I've been playing a part in doing that. That, that was something that, that did impress me from the get-go was that that culture was up there with these. It, it wasn't something that's dismissed as lifestyle. And it's not, you're not writing about married at first sight or, you know what I mean? It's it's not finding things that fit an SEO pattern to get a bunch of clicks and just writing lowest common denominator stuff. I can't believe you're calling maths lowest common denominator. There are some excellent TV writers putting in some very good work on stuff like maths. And I say that only because I assume I'm probably going to be one of them at some point during my career. However, Let's move on. In Queensland, because again, I presume most people aren't that familiar with the publication. I did touch upon this briefly, but I don't think we've really sort of mentioned it sort of overtly. Largely, while there's the In Queensland website, I'm sure the re the way that most people are consuming in Queensland is through the daily newsletter that comes out. So it's an email that hits the inbox around lunchtime. So I'm guessing 12 o'clock is probably the go live. But I just want to talk about you briefly with your remit as an arts and culture um, writer slash editor within the Queensland uh, well, more Brisbane, I guess, Queensland. What's the actual arts coverage? Well, not arts coverage, but I guess maybe the arts scene in Brisbane. What's it like and what are the challenges of Brisbane that you think are probably unique to Brisbane as a capital city? Look, I don't think the challenges in the arts sector in any way are unique to Brisbane this year because for obvious reasons, um, COVID just, everything shut down in March, obviously. So it went from being... I, I think I may have said uh, something along the lines of half jokingly when I was um, starting here to my partner. Well, you know, I might not become a millionaire here, but it's something I'm going to enjoy doing. And at least I'm going to get to go to a bunch of things. And that hasn't panned out, has it? Now? <laughs> a little bit again now, but um, but it, it there, there weren't a lot of um, concerts and uh, theatre events for a good part of the year. And so I guess it went from being something that I that I maybe envisioned as, you know, writing about industry trends and and some things that affected the overall sector. But I didn't think that it would be like it has been to the degree it has in terms of there were weeks there where it was just you were going, what am I going to what am I going to write about tomorrow? And by the time you've written three stories about um, someone cleverly pivoting their content for an online audience. You know, if you're getting sick of writing that story by the fourth time you've written a, a variation on it, then you've got to assume that the readers are going to be, they're not going to be enthralled by reading another one of those. So I, I guess the challenges that they've been on reporting on the sector this year have just been being engaged with the community. And thankfully I made a lot of inroads and, you know, uh, did some networking. I already had a, a decent contact book. Something that was something that I was very mindful of, I guess, was not relying on my old um, music industry contact book too heavily and coming across like a one-trick pony. But um, yeah, look, I've been really fortunate that I have engaged with a lot of the CEOs and creative directors from Queensland Ballet, from QPAC, from Opera Queensland, um, from all the, the big arts orgs, really, you know, Queensland Art Gallery, Quagoma. And I guess just um, having a good working relationship with, with a lot of those people. And when, when they see that you have a decent chat with them and that what appears in the next days or sometimes that day's um, culture section is a fair representation of, of the chat you've had with them. And hopefully just the reputation of our publication and my own um, reporting has, has helped through. So that's the challenge of reporting this year has just been finding fresh stories and, and trying to not ignore some of the big issues that are going on, but also not talk the entire sector down because I think there's a lot of that happening. So trying to find the good news stories amongst what's been a really bad news year for for everything, but but this sector in particular. But in terms of Brisbane in particular, I think also that Brisbane's often and Queensland in general is looked at as a bit of a cultural backwater. But with things like Brisbane Festival, which was a good news story this year, um, Louise Bazina and her team, the creative director there did an amazing job of, you know, curating and creating a festival that really fit the socially distanced sort of atmosphere that it had to be held in. And you've got Home of the Arts down the Gold Coast, 
We've got big sound here. So I think that um, all in all, this perhaps perception of Brisbane and Queensland not having an active and thriving art scene is also, yeah, a, a bit of a misnomer anyway. I actually think that Queensland, well, Brisbane at least specifically, really taps into the arts and culture scene a lot more with a lot more people from the city just directly affected by it in a way that I think is maybe a bit disassociated within the larger capital cities. So if you're in Sydney and a big arts event's going on, it can happen, but like you can be over here and that can be happening over there and never with your paths cross. But I do think in Brisbane, like these big events kind of just infringe on everyone because it's a smaller geographical space around a city. Like you just come across the arts events just happening everywhere around you. Oh, and I mean, Kwagoma next year has got um, the European Masters exhibition that they've got an exclusive um, deal with the Met to, to host. And that's likely to be without any hyperbole being one of the, the biggest touring art exhibitions in the world next year. And it's going to be in Queensland. And then you've got the Gold Coast, which has always been, even people in Brisbane have sneered at the Gold Coast views, as you know. Hell, I'm doing it in my mind right now. But like hotter down there, the home of the arts, um, it's not the only cultural thing going on down there, but it's really, it's not cliquey like a lot of the other cities. So I guess you get a really diverse range of art and artists um, exhibiting there um, across all sort of um, sort of disciplines because I, I guess there is that um, that spirit of um, of individualism and 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 not having to be cliquey and and fit a certain um, framework and and I guess that goes for the music scene up here as well for for years even when I was working at Street Press you'd interview someone from a Sydney band and they'd be amazed that they were coming up here and maybe playing with like a rockabilly band and a and a punk rock band and an indie rock band because down there it would be if, if you're in a punk rock band you had to play with a band that had this adjective before you know what I mean so I think there's a diversity some unity and I, I'm not trying to get all uh you know all touchy-feely here but I, I do think it's a really supportive arts community up here perhaps a lot more than than a lot of other cities in, in sort of all facets classic Queensland parochial attitude that was <laughs> it was it is I am <laughs> I was thinking about the US election coming up and there's a lot of articles at the moment talking about the massive coverage that's been given to Trump over the last four years in the lead up to the election. Like essentially you've got all these cable news stations that are recording record ratings. There's viewership that are highly focused on this election. Like everything is massive for them. Come the end of, well, come early November once the election happens and, you know, depending what sort of plays out there, it's entirely possible that a lot of this election coverage is just going to disappear and these audiences are going to whittle away. And obviously the Queensland state election isn't really necessarily at the scale of the US election. But I would imagine that in Queensland, as an outsider, I look at it and think that as a young publication, you've probably hit that sweet spot where you've been able to grow during the election. But unlike those US news outlets and unlike what you'd probably find at, say, the Courier Mail and Brisbane Times, unlike them where the coverage drops, well, the uh, audience engagement drops away, you're probably at a point now where you've just, like, gained enough engagement and awareness that you're probably going to be at like a pretty sweet spot to keep on moving forward. Is that the general sort of thought internally or where do you sort of sit with that? Because I think every news publication worries for the end of an election. I, I haven't had that specific discussion with my editor or my colleagues. I, I know that we've had a pretty steady audience that's only been growing since um, since we did start. And like anecdotally, just me phoning someone for an interview, and especially when you're cold calling and sort of um, reacquainting or develop with old ones and developing new ones, and you said you'd have to say, I'm working for in Queensland, what's that? And then you say, it's a public interest journalism website, it's independent, I'm writing. And the more that went, the, the more the weeks went on, the less you'd have to, oh yeah, I know what that is. And I think that we're getting a fair bit of awareness out there now. And I know just having a chat to, um, to one of my colleagues today to um, try and get some of the stats. Um, yeah, Chris Hayden, by the way, who's our who's our commercial business manager. I should have mentioned him before because he's a very hard worker and has been helping, you know, make this thing an ongoing concern. <laughs> yeah. But I know we've had um, more than um, well over a million unique uh, visitors to the site since February, and I, I think maybe the fact that we've had a pretty steady uh, audience the whole time and it's just been you know slowly building. Maybe some people that haven't engaged previously will sort of um, come in with with the brand awareness that's going on around the election and stick around. I don't think I'm personally um, fearful that that we're going to lose a big chunk of audience after the election because it is that sort of people do get it via their email and 
if you've got some interesting yarns in there and you're not bombarding people, you, I think there's that tendency to either put too much and you're scrolling through, as you say, and, and you're just looking for the couple of highlight things you want to click on or conversely having a, a, a website or a news um, publication that doesn't update that often. I, I think hopefully just based on the quality and I know I'm, I'm proud of what my colleagues do every day there. Um, it will have, it maybe will attract some new readers throughout the election campaign that hopefully stick around. It's, it's what I would hope. And I, I, there's been, it, it, there's a lot less of a, um, you know, gallows vibe about the place than other places <laughs> I've worked. Uh, it, it's a pretty, you know, everyone's pretty uh, upbeat. So there's been no, uh, no doom and gloom and people um, voicing that themselves. I, I, I guess they wouldn't if they were really thinking that, but um, but I, no, I don't think there's any um, expectation that we're going to lose a bunch of readers. I, I hope that it just, um, you know, people perhaps share an article about the election if they're, if they're new to, uh, to the site and encourage some other people to come and check it out. And, uh, and it just sort of um, helps on, on the ascendancy. Yeah. Uh, now I just want to wrap things up with just a bit more of a focus on you. Now I've got this really strong belief that if you're a media practitioner, so a journalist or any sort of content creator, I think it's really important to have a passion project on the side. So I think that helps for both personal branding for you as a professional and any media professional knows they need a personal brand these days. Like it's not exactly news or a you know, bold idea to put that out there. But also I think there's a lot of skills development that comes in. So when you have to develop your own project on the side, like you need to know how the nuts and bolts of everything work. And usually those sort of skills flow back into your day job as well, whether it's the day job you have right now or whatever that next job is along the way. You've got your own passion project. It's a podcast called Artist to Fan. And I was wondering, first of all, do you want to explain what the podcast is? But what I'm maybe more interested in is how does that fit into your professional life? Well, my partner, Rochelle, started a podcast earlier in the year. It's sort of a vegan and sustainability one called May Contain Traces of Soy. And look, I'm going to give myself props here and say I came up with the name for that. <laughs> and over wine, I had just, uh, someone else had told me how easy it was to do a podcast, get audacity, get, you know, a USB mic, do this and this. And Rochelle had wanted to do one. And I kind of just went, oh, it's easy to just do the, you know, the three chord Ramones uh, garage band style version of a podcast. Do. And it's obviously there's a lot more to it than that. There's a lot of editing that goes on. There's a lot of planning. But she just managed to turn around from concept to doing a podcast really quickly. And then she sort of turned around and used my own advice back on me and went, you've been a music journalist for nearly two decades. You interview musicians all the time. Why have you not created a podcast like you're an idiot basically um and that was that was fair um and I guess I um yeah it, it did uh, occur to me that I do have a pretty good contact book I think I've gotten a pretty good conversational style with uh doing feature feature articles over the years with a lot of musicians and I guess I just wanted to give it a go and see how see if it was listenable I've, I've been getting some pretty good feedback and um I, I actually phoned uh, my friend Jeremy Neal and mentioned the concept of him to him that I was hoping to start this music uh, podcast. And I might've been using some of my old interviews and repurposing them. I wasn't sure yet. I was basically mentioned the, the concept and said, ask him his interest in perhaps um, getting a theme song, getting some sort of intro music together for me within a couple of days, because Jeremy Neal, if anyone doesn't know him is not only a great muser, but the nicest guy in the whole Brisbane music scene, perhaps Australia, I don't know, bloody nice guy. And within a couple of days, he'd sent me this thing and I went, and it had the words artist to fan in it. You know, despite the fact I've been a sub-editor for so many years, I was struggling to come up with a decent name for my own podcast. <laughs> yeah. That gave me not only a great theme song, but the name for it. And it hit up Ben Lee because he follows me on Twitter. And it was before he sort of started on his, his QAnon quest and he started talking about some... um. I guess a lot of the the social conditions in the US at the moment, plus his music career, and it sort of hit a, a sweet spot, I think, between some difficult questions that he answered, um, you know, very generously and some really serious topics. And I guess uh, since then, I've interviewed a couple of members of Custard, um, Halfway, and I've got an episode with Blake Scott from the Peep Temple up at the moment. Um, James Rain. So yeah, it's, it's, I've got another few in the can, but um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I guess um, how it fits into my, my day job is 
it's something that I've been doing for a lot of years, being a music journal. And look, Rochelle kind of joined those dots for me and said, you know, this skill set can be used to make a, a podcast. And I was like, well, that's that's very true. And for some of them, if it's something that's newsworthy or an artist has something coming out that week or, or whatnot, I'll write a little yarn for in Queensland, even though it's a you know separate entity to my my fledgling my even more fledgling than this uh, this news site that's uh, doing a lot better than my podcast. Uh, you know, if, if there's some reason that it, it makes sense to write something for in Queensland because I'm writing something every day, I'll, I'll do that. But yeah, and it was that thing of, you know, you never know what's going to happen in life. And it's I, I just wanted to have a little project of my own. And especially when we were all sort of all in lockdown for a while, it was something to to keep you occupied. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's great in terms of like you look at, say, in Queensland and if I'm browsing through and say, oh, Dennis Atkins has written something, oh, Madonna King's written something, like that jumps out a little bit more. And then I think if you've got the name recognition where people may have come across your podcast independently of um, in Queensland, like, you know, if they see, oh, it's Dan Johnson, he's that guy from that podcast to listen to that time. It just boosts you up a little bit more into giving that brand recognition. I have to say, I know Dennis Atkins is a massive fan of Halfway and I, I had John Busby on, on my podcast last yeah. week. And I've worked with Dennis, you know, for a lot of years uh, between here and and a previous employer. And um, and he just sent me an email the other day telling me that he loved my halfway episode of the podcast. And Dennis is the one that usually hands out compliments freely. And so that actually meant a real lot. Dan Johnson, it has been a pleasure talking to you. In Queensland, look, I don't live in Queensland at the moment, but I've got a vested interest. I lived up there for a whole bunch of time and, you know, I kind of know the people. I know what's going on up there. And in Queensland, it's a little daily injection into, oh, that's what's going on. This is what I can talk to my parents about this weekend. Uh, so, like, it's been great. I've definitely really appreciated it. And just knowing about the bare bones nature of the Brisbane media scene, like, I think it's such a welcome addition to essentially what's been a one newspaper town. I'd, I'd just like to finish up by saying my editor and publisher, Peter Atkinson, I, as I mentioned before, I think he's done a, a really great job getting a small, loyal and hardworking team of people together, both, um, you know, full-time staff members and contributors. And the last thing I'll say is anyone that is listening to this that wants some free public interest journalism delivered to their inbox every day, check us out, inqld.com.au. Subscribe and enjoy. Dan Johnson, thanks so much. Thank you. And that's the Oz Media Report for another week. Thank you very much for listening. And very big thanks to my guest this week. We had Melanie Tate from A Country Podcast. And also spoke to Dan Johnson from the Queensland email newsletter in Queensland. We'll be back next week where we're going to talk about more Australian media. I guess that's what we do here. If you enjoy this podcast, please let people know about it. Go to your podcast app, hit the share button, send it to friends and colleagues who you think might find some value out of it. Also, if you're on the Apple podcast platform, leave a review, helps people find the podcast. The more people that find the podcast, the longer this podcast sticks around. That's how the system works. Anyway, this has been the Oz Media Report. My name's Dan Barrett. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at the Dan Barrett. This has been a televised revolution podcast. We'll be back next week with more Oz Media. Oz Media.